I'm just bewildered that these two evil regimes are so asymmetrically treated as we saw with the balloon. And again, if Russia had done that, we would have shot that down the moment it got near the Aleutians. Today I sit down with classicist, military historian, and author of The Dying Citizen, Victor Davis Hanson. Everything is topsy-turvy. The woke obliterates everything. It's destroyed liberalism. In this broad-ranging interview, we discuss the erosion of Western civilization and the top-down revolution he sees engulfing America. Then they have the audacity to go back and blame these prior generations for doing what? Defeating the Kaiser or Hitler or Mussolini or Tojo or Brezhnev or Mao. It's really stunning how arrogant and competent and bankrupt this generation is. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Victor Davis Hanson, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Victor, um, you wrote a piece recently titled Anarchy American Style. <laughs> and you talk about, you know, a, a revolution that's happening here in America, but you, you actually describe it as being something, you know, more serious and more dangerous than what was happening in the 60s, for example. And explain this. Well, the 60s was a cultural revolution, and it was confined to largely young people, and it germinated from the Vietnam War, to be frank. So when the, the all-volunteer army came into practice, it sort of petered out, and it was a bottom-up, or middle-class up, up. This is very different. It's a holistic, almost totalitarian. By that, I mean it, it affects all aspects of our lives. We woke up one day and instead of 70 people voting, 70% of the electorate voting on election day, it was 30. California, we woke up in California, mailed a ballot out to every single person they had on their files, 10 million of which never, were never returned. They don't know what happened to them. So the very aspect of voting changed. Suddenly, everything was on the table. The filibuster of 180 years, the electoral college of 233 years. Packing the court was a slur. Now it's serious discussion. Whoever thought that you would bring in Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico? And then all of our reference, the border. It's not that the border was porous as it has been in the past. It doesn't exist. Six, five to six million illegal entries. 
And nobody ever thought that the savior of the American energy industry, natural gas, which we were the largest producer in the world and gave us options in the Middle East, for example, it cut back uh, the consumers' energy bills. It was just, it was clean burning and all of a sudden we were told it was a pollutant and it caused asthma and you were going to ban gas, natural gas stoves, which people had been urged to, to buy. And so this revolution was staged from the top. It was an Al Gore down, a John Kerry down, a CIA down, an FBI down. And what that meant was that the protests were flip-flop. The left was not marching on the Pentagon. The left was not marching on the campus uh, administrator. The left was not marching on Anaconda Copper or ITT as they had been. They were inside the boardroom. They were inside the president's office. They were inside the FBI. They were inside the CIA. They were inside the Pentagon. And they were mandating radical reforms that didn't have public or popular support. And that was very new. And I think people on the traditional conservative side said, this can't be happening. Nobody would open the border and destroy it. I'm a big supporter of the defense budget. I grew up with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. and the FBI every Saturday night. I'm, I support the CIA. And that was, these became revolutionary weaponized institutions. Same thing with the school boards at K through 12. Same thing with the old stereotype of the liberal professor with elbow patches and wire-rimmed glasses. It was kind of an eccentric old uh, Adlai Stevenson liberal. He vanished and was taken over by these wokesters. So it's, I think we're still baffled by it, and that's why it has been so successful, because people have not galvanized a counter-revolution yet. I think it's coming, but uh, when you have all control of all the institutions, it's very hard. Um. Well, okay, so there are some mea culpas that are coming in, and I thought this is something interesting. I did notice that you, you were discussing, and this is something I was looking at as well, uh, this recent uh, article in the Columbia Journalism Review, basically talking about the Russiagate hoax as a hoax, <laughs> and, and, and in a you know, very important publication that... that I wasn't expecting to see that in, let's yeah, say. Yeah, that was, I think, a 79-year-old veteran Pulitzer Prize winner, and he systematically went through the media collapses of the last four years, the Russian collusion hoax, the Alpha Bank ping hoax, the laptop disinformation hoax, uh, and then he would, even went into some of the January 6 exaggerations. And so what he was trying to show was uh, he was giving a warning to the media that prior to the woke movement of 2020, they were starting to incrementally regain some credibility, some credibility. But after they had um, completely given up their independence as the Trump administration wore on and as the woke George Floyd phenomenon uh, absorbed them, they had no credibility, and that showed in the polls. I think only 26%, he points out, support the media now. You see that, and you can see in the latest Newsweek, there's a graduate student, PhD and MD, and he's now mea culpa. And he uses, I think, the word mea culpa, that we were wrong that by insisting on total lockdowns, quarantines, we didn't evenly apply them across class lines. 
we spike the suicide rate, the familial abuse rate, the spousal abuse rate. We rob kids of two years of school. They've never recovered. We created psychological, in uh, mass psychological problems for people that made them more prone to act erratically, i.e. riot and things like that. And so, and that was all as a introduction to the economic damage we did. And now he's saying, I was wrong. But juxtaposed to that, you see Dr. Fauci announcing today that he's getting $100,000 on the lecture circuit and he's in demand. So he'll, he will never issue an apology and yet he's more culpable than anybody. I, I think also um, in all of his, we're starting to see it in entertainment a little bit, Dave Chappelle, Bill Maher, some people like that. And I think they say if this goes on, we know where it ends, say them witch trials, Mao's cultural revolution, the Robespierre brothers, it eats or devour its own, and they understand that. I think the people in the street are starting to worry that they felt the woke revolution was kind of crazy. It affected history departments or English departments or squabbling Hollywood actors for parts or Disney cartoons. And now they're starting to see that it's actually an attack on meritocracy and the whole empirical system of hiring the most qualified, better person for the stability and success of society. So we're starting to hear, I think in the last 30 days, two close misses on aircraft. And there's been some suggestion of pilot error and air, traffic, air traffic control error. I was traveling the other day and I went very early to the airport, Los Angeles, that was last week, LAX, and the whole power went off. I mean, everything went off. The, the scanners, the boards, the planes couldn't get uh, passengers out. It was just a total, and it was somebody, I think it had damaged the electrical system during construction. So these are things are getting more and more common. Here we have the wettest year in memory up to now, and we've let about 75 or 80 percent of that precious water out to the ocean. So it's either ideological, uh, anti-empirical activity by government employees or it's promoting people that, like a Pete Buttigieg that are total incompetence and they're, they have enormous powers and they're failing. And where this ultimately goes, we know where it goes. It means that, as you see in Cuba or Venezuela, or Colombia, very successful societies start to break down and they can't deliver the essentials of life because they have a commissariat, a commissar system of ideology trumping empiricism. You know, I'm remembering this uh, Elena Newhouse's uh, piece from a couple, perhaps a couple of years ago, Everything is Broken, yeah. right? And I hadn't really thought of it as a, you know, the consequence of you know, incrementally ideolo ideology trumping, you know, I guess, good governance or good decision-making and engineering event and things like this. Yeah, I think everybody thought that the United States ran on autopilot, that from Little League, you picked kids to Babe Ruth, to high school sports, that, that you pick people on their ability. And it was a good thing to be a national merit scholar. And yet we learned that that information was suppressed from students so they would not be better than someone else. Uh, teachers deliberately tried to hurt the 
college application process of National Merit Scholars because they felt that they're superb scores. Or to take another example, Stanford University just announced the incoming class of 2026 and they boasted that there were only 23% white applicants in a demographic that has three times that number. In other words, we're into compensatory or repertory admissions. But here's what was interesting. They would not tell you of the people who were admitted how many did or did not take the SAT, which is optional now. But they did want to emphasize that those that took the SAT and got a perfect, that's almost impossible to do, a perfect score on the SAT, they proudly announced they rejected 75% of them. And so it's almost a boast that we're not going to be bound by meritocracy, that we're, and what that means is, so I was very interested about this phenomenon because I know it was not new, it had been going on. So I talked to some people off the record in Silicon Valley and I said, is this affecting you the last two or three years? And they said, we have our own test that we have to give now. We don't talk about it. And one person very, if I were to name his name, everybody would know him. He, he, he said, we would rather have a, a coder from Georgia Tech than we would from Stanford. And Stanford was the birthplace of the whole Silicon Valley phenomenon. It's electrical engine. This produced Hewitt and Packer and, and Terman and all these people. And so it's starting to affect us everywhere. And it's a war on meritocracy and it's an equality of result uh, enforced mandate and it's all done under the guise of being morally superior, but it's a very amoral system because it, it destroys the lives of people who play by the rules and try to achieve. And if it's, if it's aimed at sort of repertory advantages for quote-unquote marginalized people, then you would be much better to start at K123 and go into the inner city and have Latin required or mathematics rather than woke education, but they don't want to do that. And if they don't want to do that, then we know where it's going to go because we can see it in Cuba, we can see it in Russia, we can see it in areas of Iran, we can see it in North Korea, anywhere where ideology replaces empirical discussion and merit. And I think that's what's really scary. Nobody thought the United States would, would do that. You know, one of the things that disturbs me the most about this is because it's all, like you said, done in the guise of some sort of, you know, moral quest. But in reality, it seems to be like a kind of, you know, patronizing looking down on people. Like, you're not capable of doing certain things, so we will lower the standards for you, as opposed to, you know, helping people shine and be the best they can be, actually. And that's a good take on it. That take is saying that a bicoastal, largely white, and to a lesser degree Asian elite, who's very left-wing, says we're going to help people, and it is very condescending that they establish how they were going to help and, and what they're going to do. But a, a more conspiratorial exegesis might say they have something wrong with them because if you look at the lives that they live, and I see them going from a very poor area in the San Joaquin Valley on a Monday and going to work at Stanford on a Tuesday, it's almost like they, when I look at their lives, they're not comfortable with the people that they help and they abstract. In other words, it's almost like a psychological mechanism. 
it, and it functions across these issues. So a John Kerry wants that private jet, but he says he's for climate change. So that's a circle he can't square, except he says, well, I'm not just going to be for climate change. I'm going to be fanatic for climate change. I'm going to tell you that your leaf blower or your lawnmower is a problem. And the more radical I or Al Gore get, the more exemption I get to fly my jet. Or the Stanford administrator, the more that he virtue signals and performance art that he only has 23% whites. And that basically means he eliminated the entire white male working class from Stanford. The more likely he's going to have his child get in through special admittance as an administrator. Or he will call up a donor and let that person in. So a lot of this woke serves, uh, you can see it, and I've used this kind of metaphor, but when you have the Duchess, Duchess of Sussex, Mar Meghan Markle, and she has that iconic interview with Oprah Winfrey, another multi-billionaire from Montecito, and when you listen to them and they were swapping stories of microaggressions, you got the impression that they were desperately trying to dig up some victim status to, to justify their privilege because they understand that in America, race and class are no longer synonymous. And that's something that they don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about the white working class. And that's something that's a taboo subject. They keep saying white privilege, white privilege, white rage, white rage, white supremacy. And then you say, okay, let's look at this very carefully. So you're suggesting that the white male is raging and doing all this damage to people of color. So let's look at some statistics. Homicide, he's, he's vastly overrepresented. No, he's not. He's underrepresented as a demographic. Suicide, he's vastly overrepresented. He commits suicide twice as often as Latinos or blacks per capita. How about we use people of color in a white man's war overseas, as we were heard of Vietnam, which was untrue, by the way. No, he dies at double his demographics. 75% of the deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan were white male. How about rare, rare interracial crime? He must be preying on people of color since he's raging. No, he's a vic more likely a victim of interracial crime. African Americans commit six times the racial crimes against whites as vice versa. And so you think, well, if it's white, 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 he's committing hate crimes. No, he's vastly underrepresented as a demographic in hate crimes. The marginalized group, African Americans, are double their numbers of hate crimes than their percentages. And so when you look at the, and who would be the most likely victim of a hate crime are Jewish white people. It's just not even close. They're 3% of the population. I think it's about 10%, 15% of all hate crimes. When you look at anti-Asian hate crimes and you look at the perpetrator, it's not white males disproportionately. It's African-American, and yet we don't talk about that. So when they keep talking about this, um, it's very hard to, to find data that would support it. It's almost uh, a rage. And, and when you hear it, what, what's scary is this is not coming from Black Lives Matter or Antifa alone or the academic lounge. This is coming from Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley. And the other thing about it is when they're doing all of this woke commissariat, what are they not doing? 
And so we look at the Pentagon and we say, you told us that Ukraine would fall in a week. It didn't. You were wrong. But then you were wrong when you told us in June and July that Afghanistan was sustainable when it collapsed. And then you left somewhere between 10 and $50 billion of equipment. And you told us the Taliban would never sell it and Putin wouldn't want it. And Putin is now negotiating to buy some of it. You told us <laughs> that uh, this balloon was a weather balloon at first, and then you said it was a spy balloon, but it had no efficacy because it was slow. And then we, when we learned that, in fact, it had advantages over a, um, a satellite, then you told us that you didn't shoot it down because you were afraid of people, but it entered the Aleutians with one person per square mile or five or six in Montana, which would have been easily to shoot it down. And then when that kind of folded and the State of the Union was coming up, then you told us that they came in during Donald Trump's administration and he didn't do it. And then we talked to the head of NORAD and, and he said they may have come in, but we didn't spot them. So of course we didn't tell anybody. So they keep, they keep all these people in the military are not doing what they should be doing they're doing other things. And the result is 50% in some areas of the Army and the Air Force and the Navy are short soldiers. People are not enlisting. We have a great walkout. Everybody thinks everybody's walking to Tennessee from California or New from New York to Florida. It's also they're walking out of these institutions. They're leaving the military because they feel insulted and targeted. And then the Grammys, the Tonys, the Emmys, they're failing. Nobody watches those. Even the NBA is going down like this. And Netflix, it, it, when they went on the whole woke, Michelle and Barack kind of advised them that type of woke material, it went like this. And so, uh, so far, half the country or 55% doesn't want all this, but they're not galvanized to fight for their institutions. They say, I'm going to walk away or I want to make sure my representative doesn't vote for a new $100 million FBI building. But what they should be doing is saying these institutions are ours. We built them just as much as you did. We're not giving up Stanford University. We're not giving up the CIA. We're not giving up the FBI. We're not going to make alternate. You hijack them and then take them back. You know, so many things I want to talk about with you right now, but one thing you mentioned was the Grammys. Right. And there was this, you know, unholy piece. I don't know if you've seen, I, I saw, I, I, I saw a clip band. of it and I just, I couldn't watch further, but I mean, what do you make of that? It's just, it's like, it's like, it feels like, are we, are we supposed to think this is somehow normal? I mean, this is the part that I find so bizarre. Is this part, and is this part of the revolution, I guess, is the yes. question. Yeah. Um, I got a PhD in philology, so you specialize in either both Latin and Greek literature, and you can pick areas of emphasis. So I, one of my areas was the author Petronius, who wrote a novel called The Satyricon. And it's eerie about cross-dressing, transgendered issues, dancing, public fornication, defecation, urination. It's all in there. And the point that this author, who wrote around 60 AD in the reign of Nero, and he was called the Arbiter Elegantiae, who was a, the tester for elegance, for the, what they called elegance for the emperor. And what he's trying to convey in the art, that this society is so affluent and leisured, 
and so disconnected from its agrarian past and its ethos that created that it's doomed. And it's eerie how, how careful that was. When you watch that, first thing I noticed, I went and looked at the ratings and they were, they have gone from just 20 years ago, 40 or 50 million people down to, they thought this was a recovery from COVID at 12 million viewership because it got down to eight. But they have 25% of the audience they had just at the millennium. And it's because of this, because nobody wants to turn on a, their screen and be A, lectured by a very, very wealthy, privileged person about how illiberal they are. And two, they don't want to look through a window at these people's lives because they feel that they're decadent, morally bankrupt, and dangerous. So when you saw these people, and these people know that, and so they would rather be right with a revolution and have no audience than wrong with a revolution and be popular. So when this person puts on devil horns and gets into a red union suit <laughs> and then uh, is dressed up as a woman and then simulates fornication with dancers and sex acts, He's saying that I'm part of the revolution and I, I have revolutionary fides and I don't care that I'm destroying this institution. In fact, I'd probably like to destroy this institution. And he feels that he has an embryo or a blanket around him that will protect him as an elite. And we'll see if that's true. I don't think that's true. I think that you'll see people, walk, people are walking away from Disney, people are walking away from the Grammys when nobody zero people watch them, then you go broke, unless you can change the capitalist system. And they know that, and that's I think, explains why politically they, they're so intent on these new protocols. Tear up the State of the Union address on national TV. Deny the minority House leader the ability to select committee members. Uh, put Steve Bannon or Peter Navarro in leg irons and performance art arrests if they do what Eric Holder did and refuse to go when subpoenaed to Congress. But they're trying to change the rules or change the system as you see in Venezuela or Colombia did it or, or as I said Nicaragua or, or Peru or, or Cuba because they understand there's no political support. So we're kind of in a race right now and that is can they change the system and capture the so-called administrative state to such a degree where popular counter-revolutionary activity will, will be nullified. They understand that nobody wants this and that's why they, you can see poor Jean-Pierre Karine, whatever her name is, is the press secretary and she's, she's in an impossible situation. She's got to take revolutionary fervor and then spoon it up to the media as good old Joe Biden from Scranton. Because if she would deliver Joe Biden what he's really doing, destroying the border or destroying the energy industry or destroying the centuries of jurisprudence and letting out, nobody would want it. They would be, and I don't know how long this is gonna go on. Um, so a couple of things. Yeah. First of all, do you think these you know, mea culpas that are starting to come. I mean, I'll, I'll just mention, I noticed that the National Press Club, which I'm a member of, I saw that 
Dr. Anthony Fauci was actually swearing in the new president recently. So, so there's certainly there isn't mea culpas in some areas, but um, but there are. But they do seem to Columbia Journalism Review unexpected and you know young scientists like this one that published in Newsweek. Um, do you think that is the sign of the change, right? It is, um, with one caveat. I think the fellow's name was Bass in the Newsweek article. Yeah. And we look at a Barry Weiss that left, that was forced out of the New York Times and started this substack phenomenon or, or energize it. A Glenn Greenwald, uh, Matt Talibi. These were all people on the left. And they all bumped into the left at some point. They were not revolutionary enough. Not that they didn't try to be, but they were turned on in a very unfair manner. It could be Israel, it could be uh, the desire to be a classical liberal and be fair. So we're having people that the left cannibalized and then they become anti-woke and they're very valuable, very valuable. But um, so far we have not seen the conservatives that were always skeptical about this. Uh, the majority of people, we haven't seen what they're saying about it. And we didn't see it in the midterm elections. Partly it's because they still don't control the institutions. So we can talk about all these changes we want, but Mark Zuckerberg is Mark Zuckerberg. He's still going to give millions of dollars. He gave $419 million to warp the election in key precincts in the 2020. And Disney is still doing it. They had a cartoon the other day about you know race, saying that Lincoln was basically a racist and professional sports are still woke and you can argue that so is the corporate boardroom, BlackRock, investment, all of these people. And so we haven't seen people say, you know what, we're losing the country, we played by the Marcus of Queensbury rules, we, we tried to elect Trump so he wouldn't be a John McCain or Mitt Romney and they destroyed him basically. And we should have won 2020, we should have won in 2022, but when you don't understand absentee, mail-in, uh, balloting, or vote curing, or vote harvesting, and the left does, we got stymied there. And we're frustrated because we feel the country slipping through our fingers. So what are we gonna do? And they're gonna have to go to a whole new mentality of getting organized and raising money and everybody's got to get involved. And if they do that, I think it'll be like the French Revolution where it'll just, you know, one day Robespierre is in the French assembly basically saying then this person, this person, this person are going to be beheaded and the next moment the Thermidor come in and grab him and they take him in and, they, and that's the end of him. He, he gets what he did to other people. Of course, I'm not using that simile to suggest the guillotine, but what I'm suggesting is that it can, it can happen very quickly if people will get galvanized. Just, if it just takes one or two people, very prominent, that says, I'm not gonna do this anymore. If you had one S.I. Hayawakawa when I was a student, who when people were yelling profanities at San Francisco State, he just walked up and he pulled out the cord and he was the president of S.A. and then they made him president and that was it. Basically, he just clamped down and then it's all started to, and when people were 
the weathermen were blowing up people. They served, they, they indicted, it wasn't like Antifa, they indicted them and they sentenced them and they were in prison for 20 years. We had six or seven Antifa members went down to Georgia and shot. If Georgia arrests them, and they did, and if they try them, and they will, and if they convict them, if they're guilty, and they sentence them to 20 years, that will send a message. But so far, we haven't done that. But it can be done very easily if people will just follow existing laws and, and understand that all of us have a target on our back. We all have a rendezvous in some manner or another. It could be you're a teacher and a woke administrator, your, your child could be beaten up on a bus like in Florida and you complain. Uh, you could be riding, uh, you can be a doctor riding down the PCH near Dana Point. A person can run over you, kill you, uh, injure you. You can be lying on your back in the intersection and somebody can come up who hits you say white privilege, white privilege, reportedly, and stab you to death, and it won't be covered in the news at all. It will, nobody will know about it, essentially. And so that fate is, is unless we change, it's everywhere. And so it's, it's very scary, it's Orwellian, because you know Orwell was trying to warn us that when you married electronic technology with totalitarianism, then you destroyed individuals, and so, we're creating a level of cynicism. When you see a crime reported, such as the Florida um, recent attacks of two young African-American youth beat up a nine-year-old girl who was, happened to be white, and the bus driver did nothing, and the attendant did nothing, and it's not reported, then people think, didn't it happen? Did it, was I just imagining that? And then you read in the comments, it's very weird how in the com comments section, have you noticed that? People are almost hyper right-wing, almost racist. They're so angry. And I guess the media allows that, those comments after these stories, in other words, they war so warp the news that they want to get people angry that go into the comment, and then they uncensor that, and they just, they say things that are almost revolutionary. And what I'm getting at is people understand that you could walk out of this room today and somebody could shoot you and the race or if it was a transgendered person who shot you or somebody who was not a white male, it wouldn't be a news story in this revolutionary climate that we're in. It really wouldn't. And so everything is predicated on ideology. And I thought I saw a balloon on television. I, I thought I saw somebody take a picture, but I was, and I thought it was from China, and I thought that it was a sophisticated spy device because somebody said it had the weight of two buses. But over that week I was told that it was inadvertent, or it was, as I said earlier, it was of no value, or no, it was just a mistake, or there was a very sophisticated article trying to explain that China lost control of this device. And then we were told, well, there were a few others. So we get these narratives, like the Russian collusion hoax and our Hunter Biden's laptop. When the President of the United States says on the debate stage, that is not my son's laptop, that is Russian, and then he never apologized. Or he said the other day, when I came in, inflation was roaring. It was about 1.6. It got up to seven, it's down to about five and a half to six. Now, he's increased it three, and even at its reduced rate, it's three or four times higher. 
and nobody in the media challenges that. So we have all of these narratives that the poor citizen is saying, wow, I feel like Big Brother is watching me or I'm feeling this is group speak or news speak or whatever, it's an alternate reality. What is the impact on a society when a media stops being truth-seeking? I think it's the same thing as people in Eastern Europe circa, I don't know, 1965 or in the Soviet Union, 1958, thought of Pravda, their Pravdas. In other words, they usually thought that whatever Pravda told you, it's the opposite. So it creates mass cynicism. We're in a fluid revolutionary system where someone like a Jordan Peterson or a Joe Rogan or a Ben Shapiro has a much larger audience than, say, CNN, which used to be in every airport when, when I was growing up. Ted Turner, it was pretty, it was mildly left of center, but it was pretty empirical. Now, it, they've blown it up. And so we're in a, a radical chain of flux. And you can see it in Silicon Valley when people are, they're, they're issuing massive layoffs. Just Facebook and, of course, Twitter and Google. They're not resonating like they used to, is what I'm saying. And people are looking for alternatives. And um, it's very hard to find alternatives because we've been, a, I think the way to look at it, we've been asleep for 20 years. They make J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers of the 19th century look like amateur monopolists. These, it's, they control the whole thing and they're highly weaponized. So that was very radical and we still haven't, appreciated it, that if you do a Google search and you say Russian disinformation, it's going to take you 200 entries till you find the truth. It's usually going to say that it was true, the collusion. And that, people are starting to, to, to catch on, but it, it's, it's so bewildering that almost everything is all of the engines. And when you see people who are so wealthy and so privileged, uh, lecture people on revolution, with revolutionary fervor. If you look at The View and you see multimillionaire Jay Behar or Whoopi Goldberg or this Sonny Houston or whatever her name is, and they're lecturing people about their white privilege and this, and they're the most privileged people. And you think, well, what, what was so wrong with your lives? What was so wrong with the system? How did you become so successful? Who did it? Who created the system? Why do you hate it so much? Why are there five million people trying to get into this country? Why is China trying to destroy this country? What, what is it that you hate about what's enriching? Why is Ian Omar so critical of a country that took her from a god-awful Somalia, which was basically a hellhole on earth, and she never has a nice word to say about the United States. So, so it's, I don't know if it's performance art or what, but people are, are, are getting very tired of it. And I, I, use, I, every once in a while, I go up my upstairs bookcase and I pull out letters from my namesake, Victor Hansen. And he was killed on Okinawa. He came out of a rural high school. He was 22. He went to the University of Pacific. He got a bachelor's degree, very rare for that family, Swedish family. And they put him in the 6th Marine Division, and that division had 92% casualties and was completely destroyed on Okinawa. 
And he is writing letters to my Swedish grandfather from Guadalcanal, right before he lands into Okinawa. And he says, because he was adopted, because his mother was, died in, during his childbirth and his father was blind. So my father, who was his first cousin, they adopted him as a brother. And he's writing, gee, gosh, Grandpa, here's $50. If you could just go to a Fresno pawn shop and here's a picture of a 1911 45 automatic. We don't have money in the Marine Corps, gosh darn it, but they're great people. Would you please buy it, Grandma? And I'll, I promise to send you the money as soon as I get off Okinawa. If you could just send it to Guadalcanal. And then he's got all of these letters about how wonderful it is to fight for the Marine Corps, and he's killed. And I, I was thinking about that. I thought, wow, all those people, and that was just repeated thousands of times, millions of times in our history by people of every race, every background. And it's all coming to this? That's what it was all for? For the Grammy show or what will be the halftime show in the Super Bowl? That's what it's all for? And, and then to, to add insult to injury that this generation that can't stop with the most sophisticated computers in the world, two, two planes from almost hitting each other twice in one month, then they have the audacity to go back and blame these prior generations for doing what? Defeating the Kaiser or Hitler or Mussolini or Tojo or Brezhnev or Mao? It's really stunning how arrogant, incompetent, and bankrupt this generation is. It, it, it is. Victor, as you're speaking about all this, um, I, I'm thinking back to this piece that you alluded to that Bill Maher uh, put out earlier, which was, or recently, but um, the message was, if you're involved in the revolution, you, you should look at history. And that's, frankly, your... I think the one of your most powerful contributions to the discourse. I think what he was trying to say is that the referent for the woke movement is not Lenin or Marx, it's Mao. Because while they, they believe in a class revolution, and they tried to change vocabulary and the whole, but not to the degree that Mao did. Mao killed 60, 70 million people or was responsible. And that was a totality, 24-7, 360. So, they went after people with eyeglasses. They went after people that had any foreign accent or had a degree or uh, they had red guards going out. They had dunce caps. It was sort of like this woke revolution that is, it, it's permeating every part. It's not just political. It's cultural, it's social, it's racial. And it's trying to change the way we think about our country. And that's what's scary because, you know, Orwell would always say when he talked about East Asia and Oceania and the memory hole and all of this stuff, it was, he always said, I think it's mentioned explicitly twice in the novel where he says, we who control, the, we in the present who have control can control and alter the past to ensure the future. And what he's saying is if you can go back and you've got control of the institutions, Harvard, the New York Times, and you can convince people that 1776 was not the founding of the country. It was 1619 when the first slave was landed by the British, and your revolution was not for what you think. 
it was to fight the British because they wanted to free slaves and you wanted to keep them. And you can make that, that false narrative, you can institutionalize it, then in the future, you can justify everything from reparations to repertory admissions and hiring. And ultimately, it's always these revolutions from Mao or Stalin or Robespierre, they're always from the upper, upper middle class. And it's the nomenclature. And this, is, this thing is this top down. When you look at Ata Nahisi Coates or Professor Kendi or Van Jones, a recipient of a $100 million Bezos Award, lecturing people that uh, the five African-American policemen were guided by white racism in a city that's 68% black against a victim, a poor innocent man who was beaten to death, who was African-American. As part of the Scorpion unit, the police were that came from appeals in the black inner city to a black police chief, a black assistant police chief, to deal with out of control black crime. And you're going to take that entire matrix, Van Jones is, and from his $100 million perch is going to say, that's white racism, white lash, white this and that. Then you jump the shark. Nobody believes you anymore. And you, you can't, what, what's the use of arguing anymore if everything is racism? And then you couldn't go beyond that, but they can go beyond that because then they said, I'm talking about they being the wokesters in the media, well, the fact that these people were so quickly charged with murder. Chauvin wasn't charged with murder as quickly as they were. It was racist because they were black. And the unit was racist that was black. The idea of having a special anti-crime unit to help the inner city helpless was racist. And that's where we're going and, and we're cannibalizing people. And that's why you see, as we said earlier, Matt Taliby or Bill Maher defecting or peeling off. But you would think by now, it's been two years since George Floyd. You would think, you know, if you were alumni, alumnus of Stanford University, and you thought it was a great university that had helped cure cancer, and, and it, it has, and you saw what they were doing to their admissions, and you saw all this woke stuff on campus, that you just wouldn't write a check anymore to them. But no, it's not happening yet. Well, you know, you're just reminding me of a very short tweet that I think got one like or something like this at the time that I noticed it, but it said something really profound. Basically, just remember, this is me paraphrasing, just remember you have the opportunity to change your society until you don't. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. At some point, it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know how close we are to that point. Uh, because what that, that, that means is that at some point, you've lost control of the institutions, and the institutions are reformulated in a way that ensures you have no power. So the FBI has been reformulated. We've talked about that before. Robert Mueller, Andrew McCabe, James Comey, Christopher Wray, they all have something in common. They either falsely pled amnesia under oath. So if you were Mueller, you say you didn't know what the Steele dossier was. If you're Comey, you say you can't remember 245 times. If you're McCabe, you lie four times to a federal investigator. If you're in the CIA, John Brilliant, you lie twice under oath. And there's no consequences for any of this. Or you're James Clapper. He waited the other day on the balloon and said, 
this is nothing. This is just right-wing paranoia. This is a man who said Donald Trump was a Russian asset, and then he lied under oath, and rather than face perjury charges, he said, I gave the least untruthful answer. And he's still a commentator. And so FBI, IRS, DOJ, CIA, Homeland Security, I think they're gone right now. That I don't mean that the Pete Buttigiegs and the Andrew Mayorkas have taken over. I'm talking about the permanent employees in the GS class. They've completely been permeated, permeated by those people and warped. And you saw it with Donald Trump when he was trying to make changes and you had quote-unquote anonymous who was bragging that it was a low-level person in the Homeland Security bragging that they were opposing every single executive order or trying to derail every type of legal, and he had faced no, no consequence. He was made a hero. So yeah, at some point, I don't know, it'll be very interesting in the 2024 election if conservatives can say COVID is over. Before COVID, 70% of people voted on election day and they and we're going to have a, a you're going to have to show your your driver's license or some id just like you do to cash a check so we want you to be in person we're not going to mail out ballots to everybody we're not going to change balloting law and see if they can, the courts will allow that to happen or the left will allow that to happen i think we, you and i talked previously about molly ball's february 2021 seminal essay where she bragged in time magazine and she used the word cabal and conspiracy and said the gist of that article was that these conservatives are so stupid. They didn't understand the power we have with social media, Silicon Valley, uh, Chamber of Commerce, the corporate boardroom, the DNC, and what basically we were ready to control the Antifa BLM riots to, to go back on if Trump got elected and to stop it if Biden was elected. We were ready to send our people into pre-selected precincts to absorb the work of registrars. We were able, and this was very eerie, that we were able to modulate news and quote-unquote disinformation. She really tipped her hand because a year later we learned from Elon Musk exactly what was going on. And so when you have the FBI hiring Twitter at $3 million a year, and then you have Twitter, finally, the most left-wing organ in Silicon Valley, the old Twitter, saying, wait a minute, we don't do that, Adam Schiff. We don't do that. Even they were outraged at the level to turn them into ancillaries of the government. So that's what's, that's what's scary. And I, I don't know why a man like Christopher Ray is still FBI, given the performance art rating of James O'Keefe or the Mar-a-Lago raid or the asymmetrical treatment of the FBI with, with the Biden papers vis-a-vis -vis the Trump papers or those silly confrontations that were, where the media's tipped off about a Navarro or a Bannon or a John Eastman or going after parents at school board meetings. And so until those agencies are brought back and under civilian control and they're not rogue agencies like they are, it's going to be it's scary. I think everybody understands that. When you look at the asymmetrical sentences that were handed out for illegal parading, 
13 months for being on January 6th and parading around without doing any damage. And then you look at people who, in that 120 days of riot and mayhem in 2020, I mean, they burned and torched the precincts, courthouses, iconic churches, no, no, very little consequences. So we woke up one day and the whole canon of jurisprudence had changed. Smash and grab, carjackings, and no penalties. Hit a guy in the head with an ax at nine in the morning and be out by five. It doesn't make any sense. We have a new Congress and there is a committee on the weaponization of the federal government and frankly, you know, there's a whole, uh, or subcommittee on that and there's a subcommittee on looking at COVID response and all these things. Uh, what, what do you see these entities can do here? Well, the way our government, Article 1, 2, 3 of the Constitution, there's three parts of government. And even with the Trump appointments, the majority of judges are still left-wing. Second, we have a bicameral legislative body. And the Senate is left-wing, especially with the vice president. If you get a rogue Democrat that votes 50-50, which won't happen. So then you look at the presidency who can veto legislation and that's left-wing. So you're essentially saying you have half of a third, which is the House, and in that House you only have four to five vote margin. And so that requires an enormous amount of discipline. So what can one half of one-third do as far as uh, stopping the woke revolution? It seems to me they can do three things. They can propose legislation that they know the Senate will not approve and will die, but they can do that as an iconic sort of display of consciousness. Do you people really want to vote against closing the border? Do you people really want to vote against allowing the American consumer to have cheap natural gas? So they can do that, and they, they will do that. It'll, it'll fail, but it won't send a message for the next election. And then they can shut down the government and say, we're, we're in the House, we have the majority, we're not going to fund these programs. The problem with that is that every time they've shut it down for the debt ceiling or something, they get demagogued as, you know, robbing your Social Security check or something. So they lose politically. And then the third thing, as you raise, is they have the power to subpoena people and have these investigations. And out of these investigations, they can issue criminal referrals, but if you don't have the executive branch, and they don't, and you have, don't have the DOJ, in fact, it's not that you have a democratic DOJ, you have a weaponized woke DOJ under Merrick Garland. So no referral, will, anything will happen to it. So they have to sh count on having a lot of hearings uh, that expose this skullduggery and then they have to hope that the media can get it out, and then there will be sort of like the church committee of 1976-5. If they can show that the CIA, which I think the most recent news report suggests we're working in concert with the FBI and Silicon, if they can show the CIA was, was monitoring people, that is a red line, no matter what the left's control is. If it comes out, 
that members of the CIA were negotiating with the FBI to work with Twitter, as these latest revelations suggest, then that will be, they can't stop that, the left can't. If they show, either through a word search of the laptop contents or they have DNA or fingerprints on any of these classified documents that were in the various Biden locations, if any of them can be shown to have been used by Hunter Biden, who did not have a security clearance, and his father or somebody gave him a classified, then I think that is a red line, and that will end the Biden presidency and get him indicted. Uh, Hunter, maybe his father. So what I'm getting at is there are certain things that we've come to such a degree of this woke revolution that if you were able to show that, which I think have existed, and the people could digest that, there would be a, a terrible popular outcry. And so they're going to do that, and I, I admire them, and they're going to have to do it at the same time they're trying to be constructive and pass legislation they know will be vetoed, which is always hard to do. It's like going into a class and saying, a PhD exam, I'm going to write the best PhD exam that I've ever done, but I can't use it <laughs> because they won't accept it. And so that's what happens when you, you use all that energy. So when people say, well, they have to be positive, they have to, do, to pass legislation. Yes, they do, but it, it's hard to do that when you know it's going nowhere. And you're not going to appeal. These are not Democrats. They're not progressives. They're woke radicals. So they have ironclad discipline, almost Leninist discipline. You saw that with the McCarthy speaker votes. Every time there was a vote, there were Republicans peeling off and and they had not one person that voted. They were a block, and every single vote, they have internal discipline. If there's a few radicals that are, they don't want to give money to Ukraine on the Democratic side, they were squashed, smashed. It was almost Stalinist, so. I guess how I would conclude of them is that they're like most minority revolutions that succeed. They don't have popular support, but they have ironclad discipline and they have media talking points, and they have party lines that are very effective. During the Russian collusion hoax, somebody writes in the DNC, the word operative is walls are closing in and bombshells. And then for 48 hours, every single media outlet, bombshell, Trump's bank is communicating with Russia. Walls are closing in. It was exactly the same. And then suddenly, when they were trapped about the balloon, the new Soviet talking point came. Balloons came in during Trump. Trump ignored them. Trump ignored balloons. And that, that talking point, I mean, it was sort of like the old Roman maxim that a lie travels around the world before the truth can, can catch up. And that's how they operate. Well, Victor, I actually want to talk about the balloon narrative a little bit, but just the, the final thing, like, I refuse to believe that all of the Democrats, like a block, think this way and this woke. I, I think that, that it's more party, I mean, my supposition is that it's more party discipline than ideological agreement. What we've been discussing here is that, you know, hopefully there's some people who are getting closer to making the decision to... to I wish that were true. But I could point to maybe three or four fissures that I thought would allow an opening and a Democrat could come through and be an old 
JFK Democrat or Bill Clinton Democrat. One of them was the vote to keep Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Relations Committee, given her long record of anti-Semitism, and given that there are a lot of Jewish Congress people on the Democratic side, not one of them, not one of them, they all supported uh, her maintaining this position. So when you get to that point where somebody who is Jewish uh, is a member of a constituency that has been libeled and smeared by one of your colleagues, and yet you still will vote for her to be in a position on the Foreign Relations Committee that will affect Israel, then I don't, I don't see it. I think they've created a climate of fear in such that if you're a democratic person, they're going to call you a racist or they're going to call you homophobe or they're going to call you a bigot and they are going to cancel culture you, isolate you, ostracize you. If you're a corporation, they're going to boycott, et cetera, et cetera. And they do it with NBA players that try to defect and say things. The Turkish-American uh, NBA guy who tried to complain about their incestuous relationships with China, they, they all pounced on. You wish that there would be people who would make this decision that we only have one life. It's still a comfortable country. If I speak out and I'm canceled, I can still maintain a lifestyle, but I won't be a slave to this woke movement. And, and so far, the people who have defected have made the decision after they were attacked and destroyed. And then they get angry and they bounce back. But what we need is people who do that before they're destroyed, a lot of them. We need, you could destroy the whole woke insanity if tomorrow we woke up and the president of Princeton, Stanford, Harvard, and Yale said, we're not going to use race, we're going to have meritocratic criteria, we're going to try to help people from marginalized communities at K through 12 so that we don't have to worry about what one's superficial appearances are. But right now we're not going to do that. We're not going to have race-based, or we're not going to have theme houses, or we're not going to have segregated dorms, and we're not going to have safe spaces set aside. That was what the civil rights movement. Or if you had people in the FBI or the CIA said, we're not going to do that. If you had an FBI director said, look, we're not the private retrieval service for the Biden family. This is the laptop. It was entrusted to us. We did forensics. It is an authentic laptop, no matter what Joe Biden says or what the president says. And until that happens, it's, nothing's going to change. I don't see a solution without there being some kind of action across the aisle. It has to. Uh, I don't. I, I noticed something. I have an office up in the tower at the Hoover Institutions, and I would say once a week a student will contact me. And sometimes there are two types of students. One is because of classics, and I don't know what their politics are, and other are, say, a Stanford Review type, a conservative student, and they come up. And I can tell within five minutes, without any reference to politics, who's conservative and who's left-wing. Just because the conservative students have taken a coursework 
uh, traditional coursework in language, philosophy, history, and they have deliberately avoided this therapeutic, and they're far better educated. Far better educated. I'm not saying they're nicer or anything or better people. I'm just saying that on our side, the conservative traditional side, it is a far more uh, educated populace, more aware. And all of the statistics show that. When they used to attack Rush Limbaugh's audience, they would do studies of people uh, and ask them general questions in his audience versus uh, NPR. And it was, it was amazing. They were better informed on news of the day. And that's something that's valuable. But Thucydides, in the third book of his history, he wrote ostensibly a history of the Peloponnesian War, but it wasn't really. It was a philosophical treatise on events within the Peloponnesian War that reflected wider themes. So he picked and chose what to emphasize or to, to diminish. Not that it's not a history, but it's more of a philosophical. So he takes a little revolution in what is ancient Corfu, Corsaira. And, he, and the left goes after the right and vice versa, and it's brother against brother, and language changes its name, and radicalism, and they start killing everybody. But he says a very interesting thing. One of the reasons why the, uh, the traditionalists lost is he said that the blunter wits were, were unthinking. The blunter wits had advantages over him because they were thinking all, they were too complex, or they think that this can't happen, or we have certain protocols we follow, but the blunter wits were more determined. He was talking really about Bolshevism or Robespierreism, uh, Jacobinism, Maoism, and when you get to that state, you become the means. Uh, are always justified by this one focused end, and they can be blunt. And so I would like to think that our side, conservative thought, intellectuals, uh, a Hillsdale College, um, some people in television, Fox News, uh, some brilliant guys on the Republican side, they can win this. But these people are more determined, and they're blunter. And they, I mean, when you get a Chuck Schumer, who used to be an old liberal, and now he's woke, and he goes before the Supreme Court doors, and he says, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, you don't know what's going to hit you. You sowed the wind, and you're going to reap the whirlwind. And then later, people go outside against the law into Supreme Court lawn, justices' lawns and demonstrate about an impending case, and an assassin pulls up and that has zero impression on trying to influence Supreme Court cases or intimidation, and there's no penalties for that or for breaking into the Kavanaugh hearings and disrupting the hearings or swarming a congressman. And you're going to put all these people, not the people who were damaging the Capitol, let's write them off, but there were other people surrounding the Capitol that were nonviolent, and some people walked through an open door illegal parading, and you're going to sentence them more? And, and you're going to say that we had representatives that insurrectionist, and yet this senior senator who was the minority leader at the time of the Senate threatened directly by name two Supreme Court justices and said, you don't know what's going to hit you if you go through with this abortion. And there was no consequences. And so uh, that was pretty blunt is what I'm saying.
and he didn't care. Or when you have Harry Reid and says, you know, they said, Senator Reid, you know, in the 2012 campaign, you lied. You said that Mitt Romney had tax consequences and hadn't paid his income tax. And then when he was finally forced to, to release them, he did. Do you have any comment? And he said, we won, didn't we? We won, didn't we, the 2012 election? So I just think they, like all of these Jacobins in history, they feel that they're morally superior and that their agendas are so enlightened and rarefied and necessary that they don't, they're not bothered by the means of, of obtaining them. And so it's going to be very difficult. And again, to reiterate, I'm very happy of a Bill Maher. I admire what he's doing. I admire a Barry Weiss. I admire Dave Chappelle. I admire all these people speaking out. I admire uh, Mr. Bass and Newsweek. I admire the Columbia Journalism Review to doing what it does. But until you get a mass of people, and from the conservative side, is uh, you know, non hick porcus, not this pig. I'm not going to do it anymore. No more. No more. I don't have any fear of you. I don't, you know. And then they can be liberated, and they can. They won't be the the veil of fear will be away, and they'll just they'll just do what they have to do, and that is, vote accordingly and speak accordingly and discredit these people, and not worry about the consequences. Everybody's worried about something. I don't know career, their careers or their image or something. It's they don't know what's happened to the country. I'm kind of rambling, but I, one thing I, I thought when you mentioned the dancing at the the satanic sort of transgender spectacle that almost nobody could really watch. They just got glimpses of it because it was so disgusting. But the left had told us that children, Nancy's. Pelosi was always saying that are sacrosanct and you don't sub subject them to matters of sex. And we, as a result, and I think that was a good, a good development, that if somebody commits statutory rape or downloads one picture of a child under age, then we, we throw the book at them. But, and many of these spectacles and we see them at libraries and everywhere. There's young kids there. There's young underage kids that are watching adult men dressed up as women simulating sexual intercourse and saying things in the lyrics that you have to bleep out. And the left has no problem with it. In fact, they even talk, they have a new word for underage sexual relationships. It's not pedophilia anymore. Or pederasty, is, it's underage minor. And so they've even created a, a a lexicon of euphemism. So everything is topsy-turvy. The woke obliterates everything. And it's destroyed liberalism. It's taken a sledgehammer and destroyed it. Used to be when we were growing up that all these brilliant, innovative, hardworking women athletes, they said, you know what, we're going to get Title IX. We're going to have swimming records. We're going to try to get as many men to watch women's tennis, you know. and we're going to have parody on the golf course and our records are going to be, and it was wonderful what they did. They created the whole phenomenon of highly qualified, engaging, uh, entertaining women's sports. And then suddenly these leftists came along and they destroyed it. They said, you know what? 
This man who's a biological male who went through puberty, who has testicles and testosterone, and now he's decided once he's had the benefit of that muscularity and genetic advantage, he's going to compete. He was a mediocre swimmer as a male, but he'll be the top women. He's going to destroy a whole record of women, women women's achievement. And liberals say, that's great. <laughs> and if you don't, if you disagree like it, the author of Harry Potter, <laughs> her only advantage is she's a multi-billionaire. Otherwise, you know, they, they're, they're trying to destroy her. So it's, it's something else. Tough times indeed. I'm, I'm aware of many people in what you might call the health freedom movement who hardly would call themselves conservative, um, who have started asking a lot of the same questions and frankly started taking action as a result of you know, some of the COVID policy, for example, and are you know, asking themselves, what are my political affiliations? There may be a, a broader movement afoot than just conservatives, but maybe we can, maybe we can put a pin in that and, and kind of build on it in a future interview. I, I want, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about uh, before we finish, is um, just, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, just this, this kind of bizarre, ever-evolving Chinese balloon narrative, right? And frankly, just some of the implications that it raises, uh, uh, given our apparent deep, deep commitment on the Ukraine side of things, because of this sort of incredible... I guess, capture of media and this sort of, you know, unilateral voice in which information is out. It, it's, it continues to be very, very difficult to know what's what, both with respect to the balloon and with respect to Ukraine. Well, this trial balloon was very important because it was a kind of what the left calls a teachable moment. Because what the Chinese did is obviously they're developing a balloon technology and they feel that while most sophisticated rivals have abilities to stop satellites in space or spycraft, that a low-tech primitive device in some ways can get through NORAD and we now know that the NORAD director said, in fact, that's true. Three of them have gotten through. Of course, they blamed them on Donald Trump when even NORAD didn't know it, but nevertheless. And so we know what this was. It was a quote-unquote weather balloon, but was an actual surveillance system that in the past had gotten through a little bit, and they thought, well, we're going to increase the size, and we want to see how big it could be at what point and how daring we could do to get through the United States. And it would be a win-win-win situation. It would convey data back that is in some ways uh, ancillary or better than spy data. Like from satellites, you mean? Yes, because yeah. they, they're so quick and this is so much closer to Earth and it's much slower and you can stop it. With satellite, you can't tell the satellite, stop. You can reverse course. So there were some advantages. And then they thought, and we want to know how to pursue this technology because it's worked in the past and it was undetected. So this is going to show us, not only going to give us information, but we're going to see at what point it is detectable. 
and then we can find out whether we went too far or not with the design. And then third, even if they shoot it down, it's going to go through, we have a hunch that given what we saw in Afghanistan and what we saw in Anchorage, Alaska with uh, their diplomats, that they probably won't, they'll probably embarrass themselves as they argue back and forth and the left is in control now and they'll let it go a long distance. And if that's true, then we can take this, apologize publicly, but go back to Philippines, Australia, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and say to them, do you really want to be under these people's nuclear umbrella? Do you really think they're gonna help you? Do you really think that you're in our neighborhood and when we tell you to jump, they're gonna say you don't have to? We just sent a balloon across the continental United States and they could not even shoot it down. Let me guarantee you that if anybody tries that over China, they're gonna place, if you don't believe me, look at 2001 when we had a spy plane in international airspace and we didn't like it, so we took the life of a pilot to crash that thing in and bring it down. And then we took those 24 people and we kept them for 11 days and we dismantled that plane and we got all the things. That's what we do. That's what you're up against. That is your protector. And so I think it was a very successful. So why was that? And that's what's interesting because there's some subtext to that. And you get to this ridiculous situation that we are pledged in Ukraine to preserve the sovereign borders of Ukraine at any cost, apparently. And we have defined victory in accordance with Zelensky's uh, agenda that every Russian must be out of Ukraine so that the borders resemble 2013. And we know that in this Verdun Psalm stalemate where 200,000 have died, Ukraine cannot do that against a country three and a half times more populous, 10 times greater GDP, 30 times more territory, unless we give it not 100 billion, but probably two or three or 400 billion of our most sophisticated weapons, which will drain our arsenal and put us very vulnerable. Five years to get back to a javelin level of what we were before we gave them to Ukraine. So we're willing to do all that for the principle of sovereign borders, but we're not willing to protect our airspace in the same fashion. At least whether that is the principle that we deprecate our own security needs and enhance other countries, that's another question because that involves the southern border as well. We don't care about the southern border. We care about Ukraine's border more. But more importantly, ideologically, it shows you that if you're a left-wing country, you will go to great lengths to make sure Ukraine fights against this evil Russia, but you will go to great lengths to deprecate or diminish the threat from China. Now, why is that? Because you and I know, and I think everybody knows, that if the Russians, Vladimir Putin, wanted to embarrass us like he did, and he had the ability, which he probably doesn't, to release a similar balloon and had it cross the United States. And Donald Trump was president in 2019, and he was deliberating whether or not to shoot that down for a week, and then only under pressure, he would be impeached. He would have been impeached a third time. They would have, you had James Clapper say, I told you he was an asset. So we have to explain that asymmetry. 
And I think there's a lot of explanations. One is China vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Russia is the stereotype Hollywood villain. He's, Russia is the personified tattoo and gap teeth and ball head you see in every Hollywood movie. China runs Hollywood. China says, I don't want dark-skinned actors. And that's okay. Hollywood jumps to it. And well, why do they jump to it? For two reasons. Russia is a midget in the financial world compared to 1.4 billion person China. They have all the money. And China has a much more effective propaganda. Shut down flights from Wuhan to SFO and LAX 11 days after the outbreak and on the pr premise that they're shutting down all travel outside of Wuhan in their own country, but sending people all over the world, which you can't even fly to Beijing from Wuhan, and then you're called a racist. Or this is again like the yellow peril. Or this was like one Chinese propagandist said, this was like the way they treated us during the railroads construction. They have a much, they, they deliberately center into the race, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. They said, we, we are not white people. And the Russians are hyper white people. And so that's one thing that Russia is treated. The second thing is everybody understands that Putin is a thug and everybody understands that his government is a right wing. China are thuggish, but they're left wing because they're communist. So the, the left in the United States, as China knows, will give them a pass on the Uyghurs. They will give them a check on forced sterilization or organ or any horrible thing that the Chinese government institutionalized, the left will give them a pass, at least compared to what they do with Russia. Of course, I'm not defending Russia. I'm just, I'm just bewildered that these two evil regimes are so asymmetrically treated as we saw with the balloon. And again, if Russia had done that, we would have shot that down the moment it got near the Aleutians. And the, th the third thing is, I think psychologically the left was so invested uh, in Russian reset in 2009, we, we forget the origins. Russian reset was created by Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. They were the ones that pushed the jacuzzi button, the red one, and mistranslated it in, in Geneva in 2009 and said, you know, and it was directed, remember it was directed at George W. Bush and his uh, mild sanctions of, of Russia over Georgia and Osatia. And they said, we're not going to have a confrontation. We're not cowboys anymore. We want to reach out. And the Russian foreign minister was there, and it was a love fest. And then systematically, um, we had the hot mic with Barack Obama in uh, March of 2012. If Tell Vladimir, if he'll just give me some space, this is my last election, I'll be flexible even on missile defense. What's forgotten about that conversation is he was very flexible. He canceled missile defense, which would have been some, of some advantage, in, as you know, in Poland and the Czech Republic. And Putin was very uh, happy to give uh, Obama space during his re-election. Re he didn't go into Ukraine. He didn't go into Crimea. He waited until he was re-elected. And then 16 months later, he went into both. And so the left was very, uh, remember what that, reset was. It was talk loudly about human rights and carry a twig. Be so left-wing, uh, risk-adverse, and be so arrogant, sort of like the left's attitude in 
Kabul where you put George Floyd posters and pride flags and gender studies where you skedaddle. It was the same thing with Russia. We let them do almost anything they wanted from 2009 until 2017. And yet we, we, we harked on them, we lectured them. Putin's got to give his opposition, they have no human That was the worst combination. So then Trump came in and he killed Russians in Syria, mercenaries. He got all this, the missile, to, he upped sanctions. He flooded the, the world with cheap oil. He sent Javelin missiles for all their impeachment talk. He did send them offensive weapons that, that Biden wouldn't do. And the out Ukrainians. Of that, yeah. yeah, out yeah. of that whole matrix, the left then got very angry. They had been embarrassed with Russian. And then when Trump rubbed it in and said, if you want to look at Harry Hillary's e email, ask Vladimir, maybe he can find them. That just enraged them. And he played on that. You know, and he would say to them, you know, Putin's no different than anybody else. I'll try to get... And so they created this false narrative of collusion and disinformation, and they, and they were wedded. And that all failed. It failed. Mueller, their god, godhead, failed. And the, the whole laptop that helped them get elected by lying about it, but it did, it did ultimately fail. It was false. Everything they said about Russia was false. Now they're trying to say, you know what? We were right all along about Putin. He was always evil and we empowered him. And now we're going to stop him. We're going to get him out of... And it's almost like they, they've just... He's a, some kind of totem or, or surrogate for all of the disappointments. As if anybody on the conservative side ever thought that Putin was anything other than a thug. We all knew he was. But for them, it's fixated. So you drive or walk around Palo Alto or Menlo Park, and what do you see? You see Ukrainian flags on the lawn. You don't see Wager flags, you don't see uh, Tibet flags, you, you don't see the poor people of Cuba. It's, this has become their cause celeb. And they're going to show everybody that Putin is evil, and he was evil all along, and he was disinformationing, and he was colluding, and, he's, and they've, they've blown it all out of uh, proportion. So you talk about, let's have a negotiated settlements where we have a plebiscite with the major powers to see if the people in Crimea and the Donbass regions, let them vote. If they're Russian majority, let them vote. We'll have a demilitarized zone like Korea. You're a Russian puppet. You're an asset. You can't discuss it. I don't think we should give uh, F-16s for a variety of reasons. You're a Russian puppet. So it's, it's the same idea. They've taken these other failures and now they've made this the um, the litmus test or the benchmark of who is moral and who isn't. And it's so glaring because the bookend of it is China. And you would think they'd apply the same rigid, absolute moral standards to China and say, my God, what China is threatening Taiwan with every day, what they're doing to their own people, what they're doing to the Uyghurs, what they did to Tibet, and now they're doing this balloon. This is horrible. No, 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 no. And that's, that's what's so inexplicable about this balloon story, that there had been no... The only anger, the only effort they took to react to the balloon was to create another false narrative that Donald Trump knew about 
similar attacks, and like Biden, or worse than Biden, he never shot them down. He just let them go across. But that, I mean, when you get John Bolton, <laughs> who hates Donald Trump's very existence, saying in front of a camera, no, that didn't happen, no one ever told us. And then when you get the head of NORAD, no, that didn't, they never told us. The other subtext of this is when you have the head of NORAD saying that the Chinese on previous occasions apparently sent balloons in that apparently we didn't know about, and the left is insisting that this is either a weather balloon or it would be so primitive a device that it would be ridiculous, and the head of NORAD says, no, it's such a sophisticated, low-tech device that we never expected it, and um, that's pretty amazing. You know, um, I can't help, as, as we finish up, I can't help but think, though, about this year Pravda comparison earlier in the discussion, where we have, you know, some considerable number of people on the right, conservatives, who somehow, because they've been told all the narratives that, that you've just been discussing, believe the opposite, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, for example, discount the right of self-determination, for example, for the Ukrainian people, or believe that somehow um, Putin is a good guy in all of this. Yeah, that is a problem because Putin is not stupid. He doesn't have the propaganda resources that the Chinese do. But his propaganda is he's saying to the Europeans and the Americans, and he's made commercials if you've seen them. They're very brilliant, but they're nefarious. And what he's saying is I'm an all-white Russian Federationist, and I stand for Christianity, and I stand for traditional values, and I stand for whiteness. And you people are being swarmed by Western decadence and consumer capitalism and transgenderism and cross-dressing and wokeness. And, and that's how he's trying to appeal. And I don't think, I guess what I'm saying is if you're a conservative, you can reject all that. You can despise Putin. You can want Ukraine to win. You can even want them to have weapons to expel Russia back to where they were in 2014, right? And I think that's where most of us are. They don't like Putin, they know what he's doing, they want Zelensky to win, but at some point you say, as a disinterested observer, well, wait a minute, Zelensky and the Ukrainians are six or seven prominent names that interfered in the 2016 election just as much as the Russians did. They had the ambassador to the United States writing op-eds endorsing basically Hillary Clinton, among other things, and trying to find dirt on the tr Trump campaign. The Ukrainians did. And they were involved with the Biden family, and they may have compromised the Biden family. They're not saints. And then you can say, and if this war continues, it's going to be a, a humane in terms of humanity, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to get up to four or 500,000 dead. It's going to be the largest death count since Vietnam. Three million people on all sides died. And then you can say, geostrategically, we don't have the same interests as Ukraine. Our interest, according to foreign policy canons throughout the Cold War, is we want communist China to be no friendlier to Russia than it is to us, and Russia no friendlier to China. We always, that's what's the hallmark of Kissingerian realist, real politique. And what are we doing now? We're drawing 
Russia in with China, well, that's hard to do. They're both now taking the former clients of each, i.e. Iran and North Korea. So Russia is now supporting North Korea and China supporting Iran. And they've got kind of a new satellite on the periphery of India, which is buying Russian oil. And we've got Turkey over here that's buying Russian oil and being a haven for Russian oligarchs and talking about attacking Greece and talking about vetoing Finland and Sweden. And what we've done is we've almost created a coalition of half the world's population with China, Russia, India, Turkey, North Korea, Iran. And that, that's hard to do. And yet we, we, we don't care about it. And, that's, and if you discuss it, then you're a Putin apologist. So I'd like to know, and I wrote this article, I was asking these questions. One, if you're for giving Zelensky everything he wants, and you know that that drains the arsenal, then obviously you're going to ask to up the defense budget from 3 to 5% GDP, because we're going to have to have a Marshall Plan type of rearmament. Five years to get back to some of these stocks, draining 300,000 artillery shells in Israel. And then number two, if you're going to really be zealous about it, then you're going to apply that, sell, that same America's got to be deterrent, got to take an active role in the world and support people who are quasi-democrat against China. Otherwise, you're a complete hypocrite because China is a far greater offender, not by intent necessarily, but by means than Russia is. Right. Oh, and, and Taiwan's strategic importance, I yes, might add. Yes, and that's <laughs> the third thing I was going to say is we are not talking about the destruction of all of Ukraine. Even the most confident Putinist does not believe they can take all of Ukraine. They're talking about taking the borderlands in Crimea. They don't have the wherewithal. They proved that to go to Kiev. China has the wherewithal to take all of Taiwan. So if you're fighting tooth and nail and you're trying to convince us to, to give everything we can possibly do, and you're not worried about the human cost, to save the borders of Ukraine, then surely you would make the commiserate effort to save all of Taiwan. And you don't see that same zealousness, especially when they're interconnected. Because to the degree that we're draining our resources on Ukraine, if China was wise in the sinister fashion, and they are, in the next two or three years, they might say, after a sophisticated analysis, they might say, you know what? They're not able to do this. They don't have the stocks or the supplies, and the left is in power, and they're not going to up the defense budget, and they've drained everything. And so what I guess I'm getting at, it's sort of like the left hijacked the government and the Pentagon and said, you know, we like you for your woke agenda that we forced upon you, and we like all the stuff you have, but we're going to use it for this particular ideological crusade. But we don't like what you represent. We just want to use you. And so when it's over and we've exhausted your stocks and we've hollowed out your recruitment so you're only at 50%, uh, you won't be able to do anything. And if we're not going to re-enlist and suddenly say, you know what, just as we stop Putin and Ukraine, we're going to stop Xi in Taiwan. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. And if you don't believe me, just look at the NBA, for example, the woke NBA and what they say about China. 
or look at the corporate boardroom, look at Michael Bloomberg, fifth richest man in the world. So it's basically a consensual society. Or look what Bill Gates said. They've handled COVID really well. And I could go on, but there would be no point in further embarrassment. It's a very depressing interview, isn't it? <laughs> I hope not. But um, My wife said that the other day to me. She said, you're very effective about pointing out the pathologies, but that has a depressing effect on people because it makes them feel impotent. So, she said, what do we have to do? And I've said that before, um, but I'll reiterate it. Everybody has to vote. There can be, there's no excuse for sitting on a vote because your candidate is 52% conservative and I don't care who wins the nomination. I'll probably have a preference, but if they're not woke, I'll vote for any of them over the woke party. That's where we are now. You have to unite about a candidate. That's number one. Do not give any money whatsoever to a university, even with strings attacked, that's woke. If you want to give money, give it to Hillsdale College or St. Thomas Aquinas College or the new University of Austin. They all could use it. Give all of you can, but do not give it to Stanford or Harvard or Yale or Princeton or any of those places. Just don't do it. It's like giving heroin to a heroin addict. Speak up. If somebody calls you a racist when you haven't done anything that's mildly in, implies racism, then just say, you know what? Call me anything else. Call me five race, five times. I don't care anymore. You understand that? It means nothing. That word has been so overused, it means nothing. And then in your own, in your own life, try to reach out to people who are not like you. It doesn't mean, I don't mean like you just in race, but class. Let's get the bicoastal elite. Let's get Maria, their housekeeper, and Fernando, their landscaper. Instead of saying, you know what, I gave Maria some used clothing. I gave Fernando uh, an extra shovel he needed. Why don't you say, I'm going to go out to dinner with him? and take your kids out of a prep school and put them in the public schools if that's what you need on the left. On the right, it's uh, monitor the schools. Monitor the schools all you can. Encourage people who are making podcasts, listen to them, and grassroots uh, media like you guys are doing. New media organization nobody knew 20 years ago. It's important to, for people to support Epic Time. And you're growing in support. And I think, again, there has to be a, a recapture the language. There's nothing wrong. When you mention the Grammy uh, shows, I don't know what the adjective, you said decadent or something like that. Yeah, it's decadent. It's disgusting. We have to say that. It's disgusting. It's decadent. We don't just say it's problematic. It's disgusting. And recapture the, vo the vocabulary from, from that. And, and you made a good point. If people on the left feel that the revolution is inevitably going to devour them, then join with them and give them. And you don't say to Matt Taliby or Bill Maher or Barry Weiss or Kevin Bass in Newsweek, you don't say, well, you know what, you guys are hypocrites because when we were fighting this, you were on it and you're only going to join us because they're after you now. No, no, you say, we don't care what your past is. Join us, because we're trying to save the United States. And then don't, 
don't let them change things. Don't let them stat, uh, topple statues. Sue them. And people are suing on the courts all the time. And I know that when I was at Stanford University, and a wonderful colleague, Scott Atlas, warned in a series of op-eds before he went to the White House that the utility of masks is problematic, to use their word. And social distancing can work in particular areas, but it's not a cure-all. And natural immunity will prove as efficacious, if not better, than the vaccine. And if you spread all of your assets over all the age groups, you're wasting limited assets when you should concentrate on 60 years old and above. Do not let anybody into a nursing home without an antigen test. But don't shut down the schools, and you don't need to test somebody K through 12 or K through 18. That was all proven. But when he did that, and he tried to argue with the Stanford medical faculty, I think 85 of them wrote a letter and said that he should be dismissed, and he was promoting false knowledge. The faculty senate went after him. People at my own institution went after him. And only about two of us spoke up on his behalf. He was a wonderful person. So when you see somebody like a Scott Atlas or a Jay Bacharya or John Yanides, who were the best doctors and Martin Cullen, speak up for them. Speak up for them. And I think that's really important. And uh, I just hope that they don't get into a civil war finally to finish with the, the DeSantis Trump uh, in these primaries. I think we need the primaries. I think they both need to perform on stage in the debates. I think the other candidates have a, should have a legitimate right to run, even though Trump has been president. He's trying to be, in some sense, reelected, sort of like Teddy Roosevelt coming back, or Grover Cleveland after an hiatus. But um, whoever it is, will be just, I don't know what, I can't get the right adverb, but so much more preferable than Kamala Harris or Joe Biden in their current manifestation. And don't forget that. And I think that's very important as well. Make sure there's no third party candidate. Make sure the party coalesces. Speak out against the never Trump people because they have been taking left wing money. They said their animus was directed only at Trump and yet any other candidate that embodies a conservative uh, platform who is not Trump, they will oppose. They will oppose. They will oppose everything they've done their entire life uh, and say that it has affected by Donald Trump, even though he, if he's not the nominee, they will have a conservative probably in the Reagan mode, and yet they will oppose him now. And so that's very important that people understand that. So I think there's a lot we can do and get back to schools, get back and then you can do negative things too. Don't go to a first-run Hollywood movie. I, and when, they, when I read about the NBA and the uh, China stuff, I, turn, I don't watch NBA, not one game. I won't watch it because of that. If you think Elon Musk is trying to do something good, you don't have to be a saint, then my wife said to me, let's buy a Tesla, let's hook up, hook up to Starlink. He needs support, and we did. And so you have to act a little bit like the left does. There's nothing wrong if, they, if they've institutionalized boycotting or ostracism. Do the same thing. If during the next election, you have to, if you're a congressperson, then if it's legal, then vote harvest, just like they do. Don't do the Mitt Romney, uh, Marcus of Queensbury rule. I, I don't do that. If you don't do that, you're going to end up like the Mincheveks and Kerensky or Chiang Kai-shek. 
Well, Victor, I hope that's, an upbeat, that's an upbeat way to think. I've never quite put it that way, but there's a positive thing. Hmm. Well, Victor Davis Hansen, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Victor Davis Hansen and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. 